if there was a book and it took a year to read seven years to read a lifetime to read if there was a book and each page contained centuries if there was a book and that book was burned over and over and over again would you read it? I'm Mo Martin, and this is Radio Free Babylonia. Today we're starting something a little different. We're kicking off a sporadic series we're calling Strange Work, an investigation into the attitudes and ideas of the Talmud towards those it considers outsiders. The title Strange Work comes from a translation of tractate Avodah Zarah, the Mishnaic laws on interacting with idol worshippers, whose religious services are alien to the culture of the rabbis. The Talmud on Avodah Zarah will be the source of many of our stories today, but the title also describes the work we'll be doing. The larger world of the Talmud was a world of Roman and Persian emperors, fire-worshipping Zoroastrians, early Christians, and even Jews on the outskirts of the rabbinic sect. It's a strange world we'll be entering. Strange and dangerous. Because we'll be learning about people, not from themselves, but from rabbinic attempts at anthropology. And whenever insiders talk about outsiders, there are risks for both groups of being overheard, misheard, unheard. Statements can be taken out of context, grotesquely distorted, or worse, They can be understood perfectly well for what they are. The rabbis of the Talmud were an elite inner cabal, but they were also a minority under siege. Neither elitism nor persecution tends to produce welcoming, open attitudes. But if we judge the rabbis, if we condemn the rabbis, as so many have done over the years, we risk ignoring the wisdom the rabbis had to offer. Wisdom for us individuals and wisdom for groups who are under siege today, like women, people of color, the poor, Muslims in some countries, Christians in others, and, oh yeah, still some Jews. So, I said we'd be exploring the larger world of the rabbis of the Talmud, but it's not their world. Not really. The world belongs to the people who hold it by force who impose their will on it, the people who bestride the world like a colossus, who build roads, dams, aqueducts, people they make statues of, people like the Romans. Romans and Jews and their tempestuous relationship either go as far back as Pompey the Great conquering Judea in 63 BCE, or to hear the Jews tell it in the Midrash, as far back as the biblical patriarch Jacob and his twin, Esau, who would grow into equally powerful nations. But comparing the accomplishments of the Jewish people and the Roman people at the time that Midrash was written is kind of laughable. The Jews of the early centuries of the Common Era 
aren't really anything for a Roman legionary to write home about. They do have some literature, but it's no Homer. Some interesting religious ideas, but they're not as out there as, say, the Egyptian mystery cults. Besides the not eating pork thing, which really makes no sense, the main thing you're likely to notice about Jews is their social services. The Jews look out for their own, with well-run community charities. What did the ancient Jews achieve? In a word, justice. Meanwhile, the Romans weren't some massive military machine crushing anyone who stood in their way. I mean, they were a massive military machine crushing anyone who stood in their way. But in their wake, almost as an afterthought, they brought engineering and political infrastructure that would transform the subjugated people's lives for the better. All right, but apart from the sanitation, the medicine, education, wine, public order, irrigation, road, the fresh water system and public health, what have the Romans ever done for us? Brought peace. Oh, peace. Shut up. A conquered Roman province would see advancements that technology wouldn't recreate until a millennium after the fall of the empire. So if the Jews achieved justice, what did the Romans achieve? In a word, civilization. It was this civilization that impressed Rabbi Judah ben Eli one day in the second century CE. And he said so. What wonderful marketplaces the Romans build in every town. What fine roads. What beautiful baths, he said to his friends. Rabbi Yossi didn't respond. Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai responded, They set harlots in the marketplace. They tax the roads. They rejuvenate themselves for wickedness in their baths. Alas, there was a fourth man present, and he reported this conversation to the Roman authorities. Rabbi Judah was rewarded for his praise of Rome. Rabbi Yossi exiled for his silence. And Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai was sentenced to death. He makes it out alive, but it's a close call. This disagreement on the merits of Rome brings us right to the heart of the question. What makes a culture worthwhile? Or respectable? Or great? When we judge our neighbors, and the idea of not judging them would never have occurred to the rabbis. When we judge our neighbors, what standards do we use? What standards should we use? By the time of this story, relationships between Romans and Jews were strained, to say the least. You remember how the Romans broke down the walls of Jerusalem, ransacked and destroyed the temple, rebranded the whole province Syria-Palestina? Things more or less get worse from there. There's a rebellion, again, which is put down, again, and followed by even more brutal persecutions. This is the era of the Ten Martyrs, commemorated later in a poetic elegy. Martyrs like Rabbi Akiva, who in dying finally understands what it means to proclaim the oneness of God with all of himself. Or like Rabbi Yishmael, who was so beautiful that when he was murdered, the Roman ruler's daughter had his head flayed and stuffed so that she could look forever on his perfect face. Or most heartbreakingly, Rabbi Chenina ben Tradion, who flagrantly defied the prohibition on teaching Torah, teaching the holy text in public places. The Romans wrapped Rebbe Chenina in a Torah scroll, 
stuffed wet sponges down his robe so it would take longer, and burned him. These are the Romans the Mishnah warns you about. Lustful, mocking, and cruel. Don't trust them for your haircuts, says the Mishnah, because who would let a Roman get close to their neck with a razor? These are the Romans who will force themselves on women and children. These are the Romans who will never give us justice in their courts, who will hound us to the ends of the earth, who will set themselves against the Torah and its people. These are the Romans that haunted the rabbinic imagination. Despite that horrifying boogeyman, even the rabbis can't resist the glamour and glory of Rome. In the Tamuna commentary on Avodah Zarah, and again in the Tractate Sanhedrin, we see a suite of stories about Rabbi and the Emperor Antoninus. They were best buddies, and Antoninus always looked to Rabbi for advice and wisdom, eventually even converted to Judaism. One day, long before he converted, Antoninus sends Rabbi an urgent message. Gila, my daughter, has betrayed me and shamed the family. But he can't send the message openly, exposing himself to his enemies as a Jew lover. So he sends some arugula, which at the time in Hebrew had a name remarkably similar to the words, Gila has sinned. The puns are complicated, and we'll put them up on the website for you, but the conversation in Coded Vegetables basically boils down to a bushel of coriander from Rabbi, saying, Justice must be done. Kill her for her crime against you. To which Antoninus responds by way of leeks, I couldn't bear to. Rabbi responds with lettuce, indicating his final agreement. Have mercy, say the leaves. Now wait a minute, you say. Which rabbi? Which of the four emperors who bore the name Antoninus? None of whom, according to Roman records, converted to Judaism like the Talmud says. Well, a number of theories identify Antoninus with Marcus Aurelius, Lucius Ferris, Septimus Severus, Caracalla, Oh, and my personal favorite, Elagabalus. And identify rabbi with rabbi's contemporary with each suggestion. Personally, I'm not so sure there was any one rabbi in Antoninus. Jews have always been attracted to the idea of being close to powerful non-Jews. And you'll find stories about it from Abraham and Pharaoh all the way down to Hasidic rebbes prophesying for Napoleon Bonaparte. Power is alluring and horrifying. Sometimes it brings roads and clean water. Sometimes it brings fire and sword. Look at the coriander one way, it's just an innocuous herb. Look another way, it's a death sentence. So let's look at both sides of the coated vegetable story. Really, it's the story of Antoninus's daughter. A story about her, but not featuring the actual daughter just featuring two powerful men discussing her fate. To these men, and to us as readers, Antoninus's daughter has become an invisible tool, a rhetorical device. We pass over her only action, a nondescript crime, and accept that the whole situation is just there to showcase Antoninus asking Rabbi for advice. Worse than being used as objects for the narrative purposes of men, Women of this era are often forgotten. We talked about the Ten Martyrs earlier. 
How many women were martyred during this era of persecutions? We don't know. The shadow cast by the ten martyrs obscures and erases these women. Although one of the ten martyrs, Chanina ben Tradion, the rabbi burned within the Torah scroll, fathered one of the most famous Talmudic women, Bruria, who deserves her own episode. Years after a rabbi hid secret messages and vegetables, and stories of rabbis hid stories of women, people continue to look for hidden wisdom in tales of the Romans. The American founding fathers were particularly fond of them. That's why we see so much neoclassical architecture in Washington, D.C. Why, in their anonymous writings, the American patriots styled themselves as Cato, or Brutus, or Cincinnatus. These, of course, are the same men who tacitly allowed or even defended a brutal system of racialized slavery while waging genocidal war against America's indigenous people. If these were Rome's biggest fans, what's the legacy Rome has left us? Their roads and bridges are still here. So are their borders. So are their ideas and words. Words like liberty, which we die for. Words like crucifix, which you you die on. I don't know when you're hearing this, but on the day this was written, the Mosul Museum was attacked by the Islamic State. Countless artifacts and manuscripts of unimaginable value were destroyed by sledgehammers, by fists, by boots grinding them into the dust of obscurity. The news hit me like a ton of bricks, and I found myself wondering... How long do we have? We write words, hoping they'll last until they reach someone else, hoping they'll last forever. But really, we've got what? A hundred years? Two hundred? A millennium? And they take your words and they, they find some poor bastard who loved them, lived by them. They wrap them in your words and burn them both. I know that even a relatively harmless religious nutjob like me is maybe in a dubious position to critique the dangerous religious nutjobs, the ones who came for the Mosul Museum. And I'm aware of the hypocrisy of me as an American criticizing cultural genocide when someone else does it, when I live in a country built by black slaves and exploited immigrants on the stolen land of once great native peoples, a country that insists so much on homogeneity of culture, of skin, of language, that my father's grandfather never spoke to him, ashamed to pass on his Yiddish, a country that keeps building and building, paving over bones, forgetting where we come from in a rush to where we're going. When we look back, what will we see? So many components make a civilization. Is the standard The great distances spanned, the rivers forded, the armies raised? Or is it the people cared for, the words taught, the love felt? And when we disagree with a civilization, scorn it, fear it, despise it, what do we do? Uproot it? Erase it? Tear up the Roman roads? Burn the Torah along with its teachers? If you're listening to this, you're probably in a country that has built something it's proud of. Maybe you're listening on a train. 
maybe passing over a majestic bridge or through an expensive tunnel. Maybe I'm coming to you over a public Wi-Fi connection. And maybe the underpaid workers, the accidental deaths, the environmental damage, maybe that was all worth it to get us here. But Tor doesn't need Wi-Fi or printing presses or transatlantic cables. Its students have studied under fluorescent bulbs and gas lamps and in caves by torchlight. And after the last bridge falls, when the lights all flicker out and humanity kindles its final flame, who's to say we won't study Torah by its light? By listening to this podcast, you're fueling a Nair Tamid that stretches back to before the Colosseum was built, before the Roman peace was kept at the point of a sword. And the light of learners doesn't only stretch back, it shines forward. You're listening to this to wrap yourself in Torah. Let them come with their sledgehammers. Let them come with their torches. We're already burning. This episode of Radio Free Babylonia was written and performed by Mo Martin. Our audio engineer was Michael Shane. Special thanks to Harry Waxberg, Dan Pasternak, Gela Solomon Puertas, Sarah Belknap, Josh Schwartz, and David Svikalman. Radio Free Babylonia was produced and edited by me, Michal Richardson, for Jewish Public Media, which creates Jewish media for all audiences and is supported in part by Next and Natan. If you like this episode, get in touch with us at www.radiofreebabylonia.org. While you're there, check out Talking in Shul, a roundtable of brilliant and witty ladies discussing Jewish topics that matter. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and just about any way you listen to podcasts. We're everywhere. But we'd love it if you subscribe and rate us in iTunes. It actually helps. Thank you. on you.